Welcome to the Cap City Offers Podcast. This is episode 172. You've got Chris and Brian, and this time around we're going to talk about a recent training event we did. We're shooting ARs and AR-10 type rifles uh-huh. at about 300 yards um, from a variety of really goofy positions at targets ranging from about 1 MOA to around 4 MOA. Yep. Um, it's some of the lessons learned and things um, coming out of that. So guys, as we, this is something that we do kind of on an annual basis with our group of Merry Misfits that we train with. Um, and so the, the, the night is basically spent rotating everybody through a series of, call them props or barricades or whatever the case may yeah. be. Um, and, and so basically you get each, each team of two guys gets probably, I don't know, 10 minutes. I don't know. what, what, what we, we did 12 minutes. We had four different teams. Yeah. Uh, or I, I should say five teams. Yeah, four and uh, a half. But four yeah, and a half whatever. for five teams. Uh, everybody got probably five to six shots per position. Yeah, so you're moving from basically every 12 minutes you're switching to the next position, um, and, and you're rotating through the group of folks, each team, and then the other shooter shoots, A shooter shoots, and then the next round, B shooter shoots, etc. going through. So you get multiple reps on it, but you have to get up and get reset each time. Um, and the idea being not to shoot from the same place on whatever prop or barricade um, twice. So trying to figure out different ways to utilize as as either structure to rest off of or as cover to shoot behind uh, that different types of mentalities around it. And then also working high and low. Most of the pieces you could shoot off the top of them, you could shoot off the bottom of them, you could shoot through them or whatever. So it's working your way through to see what works best, not necessarily taking the proned out easy shot or whatever, uh, but seeing how you make your gun get on that prop and make it work. Um, if you're a PRS shooter, you already know what we're talking about. Um, if you're somebody who's a legitimately trained sniper, whether that be law enforcement or military or whatever, um, you probably had to deal with a lot of these things too. Uh, with law enforcement, urban-type barricades like handguards, railings, rooftops, etc. Uh, if you're a military sniper, then learning how to work off of whatever's available to you in the field, whether that be in an urban environment or in a... a I guess, woodland or non-improved environment, uh, learning, you know, whether that's a table um, that you're getting set up on or set up with, or whether it's a log that you're behind or whatever the case may be. So that was the whole point of this was really more about learning how to use what's available to you and find the best position possible as quickly as possible, and then applying marksmanship technique uh, to make those hits. And so we had a pretty good time. It was fun. Yeah. One of the Big takeaways was being able to not only get set up, but yep. get set up in a very stable position that you can maintain. Yep. Um, being able to to get on target and stay there for 30 or 45 seconds. Yeah. What, while the people in front of you in the rotation shot exactly. um, was pretty important. Yeah. What, what creates stability? What are the things that create stability? Because I think this is one of those things that uh, everybody thinks is intuitive, but it's not. Um, so we talk about creating stability. What are your what are your traditional marksmanship shooting positions? Prone, sitting, kneeling, standing, and then however you can best support yeah. those things. And so if you you know have enough firm understanding of how to get into a good seated shooting position, a good kneeling shooting position, um, or some of the non-traditional but very effective shooting positions. There's a, a position that a number of the guys use where you're seated on the ground, but you're basically hooking the mag over your knee, um, your opposite side knee from your dominant shoulder that you shoot off of, 
um, and doing some positions like that and then combining that position with use of the barricade, use of the prop, whatever that may have been, whether it's a boulder or whether it's a set of stairs or, or whatever, um, just different things of that nature. Um, you know, so knowing, understanding good fundamental marksmanship positions uh, and also understanding that the lower you can get to the ground, the likely more stable you will be. Um, you know, prone being the most stable, sitting, kneeling being the next, and then standing the worst um, or the last uh, and going from there. There were times where the barricade, if it fit your height, maybe standing wasn't a bad position and maybe pure kneeling wasn't a bad position. But then there were other times where the height was just off and maybe you needed to do, you know, a full Monica, be down on both knees instead of just one or, or some combination where you were doing some manner of like a rollover prone rather than a traditional prone. Um, and working your way through that. So understanding, you know, low to the ground is good. Good fundamental shooting positions is good. Um, and then lastly, points of contact. How many points of contact can you, can you get with something that's firm and not moving and get locked in? Um, and so it's a matter of working through some of those different things to, you know, to work into what's the most stable position. When you start talking about shooting MOA targets, um, we, I think, thankfully, didn't have wind to deal yeah, it with. Was a, it was a very calm night. Yeah, and what little bit of wind was zero value. It was coming from directly behind us, which was unusual at that facility. Um, but, yeah, and, and it was pretty impressive to see, you know, uh, the, the, the three or four MOA targets really weren't a big deal. I mean, that was kind of everybody got set up and could make those hits unless they were in just a truly awkward position. Um, and everybody could figure out a way to, you know, I, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, um, but when we talk about points of contact, everybody could figure out a way to make love to the prop, you know, get close to the crop, crop, the prop, get locked into yeah. it. Um, I, I don't know if you guys, you know, if you know what, what a tank trap is, uh, think D-Day, uh, where the Germans welded, you know, three big pieces of I-beam together and put them out in the water in the surf zone to catch boats, catch people, catch whatever. Um, do the same thing with a 4x4. Basically bolt three 4x4s together that are probably six to eight feet long, whatever, and it looks kind of like shooting off a jack. If you can imagine the kid's toy jack that you, you know, bounce the ball and scoop the jacks up. It's like that. Uh, but you're trying to shoot off of that. There were some positions that looked goofy, but allowed you to get laid into the jack and use it for a stable shooting position. They afforded you no cover or concealment whatsoever, but they got you set up and let give you. So you kind of weigh in those things out too. Yeah. stability versus in this case, we weren't trying to hide. We were trying to get stable and make hits. So... Yeah, one of the other big parts of being stable is having what's called natural point of aim. Yep. So you're you're not having to force the weapon to be on target. It just kind of wants to to be, you know, pointed within a degree or two of where it needs to be. Yep. And then kind of just resting there. Yeah. So you're not muscling it on a target and trying yeah. to hold it on target with muscle tension. You're using your bone structure, your body position. Um. And and I would I would say that you know when when you start looking at natural point of aim, some of the some of the barricades and things like that you couldn't get perfect natural point of aim, but the closer you got to it, the more it absolutely mattered because the less stress you were putting on you and the yeah. gun to get it where you wanted to go. And that's a, that is a big point was, I think with this was you could force a shot from a position that wasn't perfect or comfortable and maybe make the hit, but it was a whole lot easier if you could get set up in that natural point of aim type position, even though it might be non-traditional, it's still as natural as you're going to get, meaning good body position pointed downrange yeah. kind of mentality. <clears throat> there are some places where you, depending on how you choose to utilize the barricade, at some point you ran out of those if you were being honest and moving from the best position to the to whatever position you had left. Yeah. And sometimes it just sucked. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, 
that's kind of what the push was to find the best position and then figure out how to make it work from the less than best position, I think, it's for me anyway. So um, the other thing we saw, basic marksmanship, uh, guys trying to, if you've ever heard the term, accept your wobble. Uh, we'll talk about wobble real quick. Wobble, your body moves. You can't really help it. You breathe. Um, again, the, the, if you're prone down on the ground with a sandbag underneath the fore of your gun and a bull bag underneath the stock of your gun, you'll have a whole lot less wobble than if you're standing offhand trying to make the same shot. Um, wobble is understanding that your sights are going to move to a certain extent. And we had guys talking about trying to time the wobble um, versus accepting your wobble. And I think that trying to time your wobble when you're starting to shoot small targets at distance becomes... I don't want to say a fool's errand, but I mean, it, it's it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I remember talking to guys who shot for the Navy rifle team at one point, and they talk about making, standing offhand, making a figure eight with the gun, with the with your front sight, making yeah. a figure eight laterally across, back and forth across the target. And as you came down onto the target from whichever side, dropping the shot as you came down. Um, these are dudes who literally get paid to shoot and shoot lots and lots and lots and lots of rounds every year. Um, and I think that if you, with enough training, you can make something like that work to your advantage, but within that, they're still accepting their wobble. And rather than have a, a naturally created wobble, they're controlling their wobble with a figure eight type pattern. I would say that is a very advanced technique for a shooter versus just trying to get set up in the best position you can, then understanding your sight's going to move around and you need to press through that. And to some extent, if it's a small enough target, that it's smaller than your wobble zone, it still might be smaller than your act than your ammo capability, and it might be smaller than your gun's capability. It's probably smaller than your capability is the big concern within yeah. that, right? So how how well do you control a gun? That comes down to training, that comes down to strength, that comes down to back to body position, natural point of aim, things of that nature. How do you decrease your wobble zone? And the best way to decrease your wobble zone is to get out and shoot, just to practice, get in those positions learn to control your breathing, get a little stronger, maybe get in a little better shape, maybe lose a little bit of that belly that gets in your way um, for some of these yeah. oddball positions. Car- cardio conditioning matters. Amen. Mobility too. Mobility is a big deal. You know, how do you have good hips? Do you have good ankles? Um, do you have good low back mobility to get in a good sitting position? Because there's some of those where that just kills me, um, partly because I'm fat and then also partly because I don't have good mobility, which is something actually I've probably been focusing on more in the last six months or a year than I have in forever. So, and I can actually tell a little bit. There are some positions that would not have been comfortable last year that were a little better this year. So I won't say great, but I'm still chubby. I'm still chubby. It's okay. So it's all right. If you're chubby, it's okay. You can be chubby and shoot too. Yeah. One of the uh, things that was pointed or taught to me a long time ago is as the gun wobbles, every time you feel like you have a good sight picture, add a little bit more pressure to the trigger. Yep. Um, and then eventually the gun will go off when it's supposed to. Yeah. Not when you're trying to force it to. Yeah. If you're trying to force it, you're putting muscle into that conversation. You're putting tension or stress into the system, and it's almost guaranteed to push you off rather than onto the target. Um, I think there are very, very few people who can can drive the trigger into the place they want it exactly when they want it. And when you try and do that versus squeezing the trigger and trying to maintain good fundamental shooting techniques, the shot's more likely to fall where you want it than you are to be able to force it where you want it to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that a good way to put that? Yep. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Especially when we're talking, you know, service rifle triggers. Yeah. Um, or like a Bravo PNT, LG ACT. Yeah. And even into like a Geisley SSA. Yeah. 
Um, once we get to like an SSAE, which is a three and a half pound trigger, yeah. for things lighter than that, it becomes really difficult to just add a little bit of pressure. Yeah, because like, I mean, if you and going like to PRS, I know a couple, I've talked to a couple of PRS guys and they're basically using triggers that it's skin deflection. If you push on the trigger hard enough that your skin presses in, the gun's going bang. Um, and that's for that sport, that's for that game, and that's totally cool. And those guys are freaking amazing. But once the sights are on target, you can almost just tap the trigger and, and or, breathe on it. or breathe on the trigger, whatever. But I mean, you know, and we t you hear guys talk about, you know, shooting shotguns and stuff like that, swinging on a bird. And when you cross the bird, just mash the trigger and go on. Um, and, and to a rifle shooter, or a pistol shooter, it's like, oh, well, you want to squeeze the trigger. There's applications where you can still be a little heavy handed, especially when it's a half ounce trigger yeah. or a one ounce trigger. You can get heavy handed and still not move a 24 pound gun. But when you're shooting a eight pound gun, optic, mag, everything, eight pounds, maybe less, and you start slapping the trigger, you aren't going to hit things beyond, much beyond the muzzle. So, yeah. 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 Um, what else came out of the debrief? Points of contact, uh, shooting fundamentals, um, natural point of aim. I'm trying to think of what else we talked yeah. about that was, the, um, those were the criticals. Yeah, those are, like, having having good fundamentals made everybody get hits. Yep. Uh, when fundamentals broke down, marksmanship fundamentals broke down. Yeah, uh, there was no ting. Nope. 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 Uh, nope. So that kind of you know being able to isolate. For me, one of the big takeaways is being able to isolate marksmanship away from equipment. Yep. Uh, you know, I think anybody. You know, we had everything from, you know, really plain Jane. You know, ARs. Well, we had we had, a, we had a straight-up M4 with a non-free-float handguard, iron sights, and some type of cheap red dot optic on top, yeah. uh, making all hits. The, all the way to, you know, a, honestly, like an M110 clone. Yeah. Well, no, actually an M110. Yeah. Um, that's a legit M110. I mean, the, the actual receiver stamped M110. Um, you know, and, and we get, you talk about equipment, you're back to a gun that's technically an only, it's an MOA or minute-and-a-half or minute-and-three-quarter gun, but the shooter behind it has good fundamentals and was beating the crap out of an MOA plate, you know, at 300 yards, that's yeah. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And shooting good ammo with a good gun. Um, you know, those those things all matter, but definitely being able to separate the fundamentals from the tool because we had guys running AR pistols. I think the shortest was probably 10 and a half, 11 and a half inch yeah. barrel, um, but pretty consistently making hits. Uh, guy running an M4 non-free float with a dot optic, making consistent hits. Um, I was running a Tavor for part of that, an X95, which has a better trigger than an, than an older Tavor, but still a rough trigger and a 3X scope, uh, an ACOG, and was able to, not consistently, but probably half the time, hit an MOA target at 300. That's probably outside the ammo's capability I was shooting yeah. in this case. The gun's capability, for sure. The gun shouldn't be able to do that. And the ammo was the, we sell this 223 Stand Armory stuff, and it shot incredibly well. I was super impressed with the ammo um, from that perspective. It was very consistent. Um, and then the other gun I was running was a 14 and a half inch gun with that one to eight credo and a, a good trigger in it. And that was pretty brilliant. That was, that was almost like cheating. Yeah. Kind of like your gun in six, five is like cheating. Yeah. So yeah, it, as long as you're in a good position, right. but trying to horse that big gun that, over a balance point was rough. It, yeah. The, the AR 10 I've got in six, five is, I don't know, 12, 12 ish pounds mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, with a two and a half to twenty from US Optics on it. Yeah. And once it started to move around, there wasn't really yeah stopping it quickly. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, 
one of the other aspects of the night is you kind of got this mental pressure of making the shot quickly because yep. everybody's waiting on you to make the shot so yep. that they can shoot. Yep. Uh, so doing that, you know, slow fire rifle at Camp Perry thing where everything's perfect yeah. um, is hard, is mentally very hard to do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, there were a couple shots where basically I chose to lean up against the obstacle, the, the barricade, the whatever. I chose to lean up against it and essentially shoot offhand. Um, with the Tavor, and it's the Tavor kind of has some design things that lend well to that type of shooting, even if the gun is not designed for that. Um, and so was able to lean up against, and was able to, to, I would say, relatively consistently make the 4MOA target, you know, make that 12-inch plate wasn't a real big deal, but essentially shooting offhand, just leaning up against something, not resting the gun or anything, not resting an yeah. elbow on anything. Uh, as soon as you could set the gun on something, 4MOA was not a big deal. Uh, three and one MOA and a little bit over one MOA, that four inch plate, those, that, that was a different conversation. So, yeah. Um, equipment. Yeah. Uh, optics. Um, good optics matter. Yeah. Yep. Good optics matter. Um, I, I know that we had, like, so I was running that Credo, you were running that USO two to 20. Um, the Credo, the more studied position, the higher magnification I went. Um, if I was, if I was shooting off something that wasn't steady, I backed off to like five or six power. If I was shooting, from prone or from someplace locked in, I could roll it up to eight. Uh, no big deal. Um, running the ACOG with a rough trigger, um, honestly, at 300 yards, you're using the top of the post. It's a pretty fine aiming point. I would guess it's, I would guess it's an MOA maybe aiming point at that point. Yeah. The top of that post yeah, is pretty narrow, maybe a half MOA even um, for that post physically. Um, and visually very easy to do because with 3X magnification, you're not seeing the target quite as well as you are at five, six, eight, whatever, but you're also not seeing the movement. So confidence wise, mentally wise, yeah. still not difficult to make hits at 300 with that, even with only a three. Provided power. you can find the target or see the target. And, and, the, and even with the ACOG, it's good enough glass. Um, I didn't have a lot of problems seeing targets. Yeah. I think you got better, you got a better strong side eye than I do. That's entirely I try possible. To get behind it. Yeah. And the, between the green donut or the dot, yeah. that was quite bright. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was for me. It was really hard to actually see the plates. And I, I think part of that too is getting behind it on that gun. Um, the Tavor is a very wide platform, and I think that you almost need to go to a lower one third height, even for a magnified optic, um, rather than like that's probably an absolute co-witness height. I'd have to double check that because it's in a Larue mount okay. um, for the ACOGs, and I'm pretty sure the Larue mounts for the ACOGs are. are I don't think they're lower one third. I think they're just standard co-witness height. And on with the width of that Tavor, the back end of the gun, because the action's internal to it, yeah. um, you, it's, it's a lot wider. And so getting over that, getting over any optic is a little more difficult on that gun. So that's something that I'm still learning whether or not I like. So, yeah. 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 yeah one, of the, one of the things with optics is, you know, get your gun out every at least six months and confirm zero. Yeah. If, if it's um, something a, you stake your life yeah, on. We yeah. We had a number of guys that had... Um, scopes that had drifted yep. um, anywhere from a couple inches to one guy said he was eight inches off because um, it was the it was going to done the same thing with last yep. year but close, hadn't shot it but since. hadn't shot it since and close to three MOA yeah. um, and that that's also where I and one of our one of our guys who it hunts a lot and I'm going to say probably spends eighty to hundred days a year in the field hunting um, and some of his hunting is varmint hunting so this is a dude who's got you know a confirmed on a crow at seven hundred yards. Um, I mean, he does some legit long range in the field shooting and, and he knows of what he speaks. 
Um, you know, one of his statements was that any scope, you know, put it, put it away long enough, it's going to drift. I will dispute that. Um, I think when you, if you buy, if you buy into a higher end scope, I've, I've never seen drift with the Trigicons. I've never seen drift with, I, I, I'm not running into guys who have drift issues with night force optics or the high end Leopolds. I do think maybe if you're working with something and I, I hate to throw a dollar amount on it, but I'm going to throw a dollar amount on it. If you're working with a sub thousand dollar scope that you may have those kind of conversations, uh, you get over a grand in general with a good quality optic. I think you're way less likely to see those kinds of issues. Um, if the, if that optic and weapon reside in a vehicle full-time or, or more than just part-time, um, definitely that's where I see issues like that. Even with higher end stuff, you want to check it. Uh, but it's fairly cheap and it's probably good exercise to get the gun out once a quarter, once every six months, whatever, and just confirm. Or if you know you're going to be using it, maybe if you can get out, you know, a week or two beforehand and just confirm your zero and go on. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of scope swapping before this because I wanted to get the Tavor set up to use it. And so had a little bit, probably more time than you guys did behind the gun, behind the scope, unfortunately not at distance. Well, you got a lot of time behind that ACOG in general. Exactly. Yeah, I've been using that ACOG for 15 years um, and probably won't ever let it go just because, again, MOA targets with a 16-inch battle rifle, um, MOA targets and still making hits. Uh, you you, you got to like that with a three-power scope. Yeah. Pretty handy. So, yeah. Uh, anything else equipment-wise? Um, yeah. Trying to think of guys running bipod. You're running a bipod. Yeah, I'm just running the, the Magpul um, M-Log bipod. Yep. Um, gets the job done for what I needed to. Yeah. Um, does not do all the fancy stuff like an Atlas would. Yep. Uh, there were definitely some props where having a better bipod would have been mm -hmm. handy. Yeah. Um, but for, you know, for 130 bucks, the Magpul bipod does a really good job. Yeah. And the the gentleman running the M110 had an Atlas bipod and put it to good use. There were a yeah. couple of different times where he chose to go with that 30 or 45 degree angle and press into it and use that because that's where the catch was to set up strong. Um, and I would say that it worked brilliantly. Um, and I, I, I would, I would push into the idea that when you start talking about, you know, 12, 13, 15 pound plus guns, and then start talking about maybe 500, 600 meters or more, um, looking at something like an Atlas over the Magpul becomes a conversation. The Magpul would be, is brilliant on a lightweight gun. It's brilliant on a hunting gun because it doesn't weigh a whole lot and is very effective. But I think if you start chasing legit distance, you're going to run into issues with something lightweight, whether that be that I'm going to get flamed by all the Harris lovers. Not a big Harris bipod fan uh, for a number of different reasons. Stop in the shop. I'll tell you why. Um, but the Harris's and the Magpuls, I just think there's going to be better options when you start talking about legit long distance, yeah. 800, 1,000 or more. Um, and then really heavy guns, too. I think you're not going to go to a PRS match and find a top-level competitor running a 20-pound-plus gun. Um with a bipod on it, with a Magpul bipod on it. It's just not going to happen. So at that point. Yeah. I mean, pure, like we were, none of our, none of our guys were shooting PRS guns. No. But, you know, we're all no. shooting essentially, you know, battle rifles. Yes. Or, yeah. You know, smaller than battle rifles. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. DMRs, DMRs, somewhere from a DMR through an AR pistol, quite honestly. Yeah. And, and again, able to make three to four MOA hits consistently and, and MOA hits occasionally, yeah. if not better. So, yeah. Yeah, ammo uh, was a big deal for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of guys had their DMR-type guns set up for um, 77 grain or 75 or, grain. Or some kind of match. Some kind of match yeah. ammo. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that stuff's, one, hard to get, two, expensive when you used to be able to get it. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want to shoot up their supply of it, so they were running, you know, 55 grain, yeah. you know, 
either 5.56 five, or 2.23, yeah. um, but didn't really have a good zero or a good idea of where yeah. that ammo shot in comparison to what their optic was zeroed for. Yeah. Um, and that caused a lot of heartburn and headache and, yep. and if you, tears of frustration. Yes, just not tears of joy, tears of pain. Um, and if you look to, you know, there's something to bear in mind here. If you if you throw out that group with your 77 grain, your 262 or whatever it is, and, and you're, you see, say it is a battle rifle and you got a zero to 50 with a 5200 kind of deal, that mentality. Um, if you punch through that three or five shot group at 50 yards and everything's beautiful and then you put in 55 grain ammo and it's only off by half an inch or an inch, uh, that's two MOA. Yeah. An inch of 50 yards is two MOA. Uh, a half inch at 50 yards is, is an MOA, right. um, which takes you off of that precision targeted distance and understanding again, only a couple of us were shooting legit DMR precision type rifles. That's something you've got to understand that just purely the accuracy deviation, cause the different round and the twist rate and how it affects the bullet. If it's different at 50, it could be drastically different at 300 only because now we're putting air and distance through the air in the conversation and time. And so those things all come into play with how the bullet flies through the air better. And generally that 77 matches a boat tail, your 55 may not be. And you just see a lot of weird things happening at that point yeah. that are external ballistics. Um, so understand that if you're going to try and shoot distance or precision with cheap ammo, you may want to consider rezeroing your gun for the day or, or, understanding that you're just not going to be where you thought you were going to be yeah. and then learn how to deal with it, whatever that may be. Yeah. Having shot or yeah, having shot, you know, rifles with low power variables for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, when I zero the gun, I generally try to shoot, you know, the ammo I want to like, I'm going to load the gun. I'm going to fight the gun with. Yep. Uh, that's what is actually zeroed in the scope. Yep. And then anything else I think I might be shooting. Um, I will also shoot and then note the adjustment for the scope. Yeah, and um, and I would say 300 yards and in. I didn't even note. I didn't even note. I didn't try and dial or make a change and then change back. I just said I'm, yeah. I'm going to hold over. I need. To, I know I need to hold a, a mil, a tenth, a two tenths, whatever, and just hold and go on. So, so either gotta, one. Yeah, you got to know. Gotta think. You got to yeah. know what that that hold is or yep. what that. You yep. know, it might it might only be two clicks. Yeah. Um, but at 300, those two clicks become really important. Exactly. Absolutely. Yep, yep. So, yeah, the good good thing is it's angular. Um, the bad thing is you still have to know it, and you've got to train to it and learn it, and that's something I'm still doing uh, for yeah. sure. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, trying to think of anything else equipment-wise. I mean, the ammo, like I said, the ammo was a big deal. Um, and because I had swapped scopes, I did all the zeroing with that 223 stand one 55-grain stuff, so that's what I went ahead and zeroed with because I know that's where we're going to be for the next month. Um, so I didn't really worry about it. I will have to go back through and change a lot of that to 77 grain because that's what stays in the gun. So, yeah. but for the moment, good enough. Yeah. And again, something, you know, when, when you're shooting, you know, 50 yards and in, mm -hmm. these kind of issues generally don't show up yep. unless you're shooting, you know, golf balls at 50 yards. Yep. Uh, we start pushing the distance that, you know, angular standards get a lot wider, you yep. know, in inches yep. or in meters or, you know, whatever measurement you want to use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather quickly, uh, yeah. and that's where you know we start to see. We start to see things, you know, fundamentals either breaking down, yeah, or where equipment starts to fall off. Yeah, um, that you just they get hidden when you shoot stuff up close. Uh, and and atmospheric become part of the conversation yeah. to a lesser degree, but the further you go, the more it matters. The more you guys start taking it into account. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. So cool, guys. Uh, the the best advice I can give you um, is a piece of advice given to me by a dude who's been doing long range shooting for a hell of a long time. Um, when you think you've got your gun set up 
if you can avail yourself of the longest range possible, you think that gun's effective distance is, say for example, an AR might be five or 600 yards, um, take that gun out and confirm your zero backward. Um, in ACOG, you use the top of the post for a 25 meter rub zero, and then you zero the dot at 100 or the top of the chevron at 100, uh, but you've got four, five, and 600, maybe more on the post. Take that gun out to 600 yards on a steel plate, something you don't have to walk a whole bunch, and, and smack that plate a few times at six, you're a whole lot more likely if you're on at six to be on it at five, four, three, two, and one than if you're on at 25 or 100 and still be on at five or six. Uh, work it backward if you can. If you have if you have access to that, absolutely work it backward because I can see where that comes in at this point. And I've had that confirmed a number of times just at 300, much less at four, yeah. five, and six. So, uh, you know, work it backward. The other thing is get out and shoot. Get in those positions. You can dry fire in those positions. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, it's just a matter of working it like it is anything else. We probably spend 80% of our time working handguns cause that's what we carry. Uh, so the rifles are a little less comfortable to get back into, even for dudes who had professional exposure back in the day. Um, but it's like anything else, you got to train to it. You've got to earn it. You got to spend the time on it. Um, but man, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. So, yep. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. The other big thing, you know, if you're. Typical rifle shooting is, you know, up close, you know, 25 yards and in or 50 yeah. yards and in. Take take the time to stretch stuff out. Yeah. Um, there's no replacement for doing it. Yep. And it will really show you where your fundamentals need some work. It will, and it will do a lot to make you better, build your confidence, and make you better. And being better up close is, is you know, that's always a good thing too. Yep. So yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, as we come across cool, interesting things and get new inventory into the store. Um, that stuff gets posted up on our social media on a somewhat regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, you can follow us along on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, we're Cap City Outfitters. On Instagram, we're Cap City Outfitters 2. Uh, on our website, capcityoutfitters.com, you can find information such as how to do an FFL transfer or how to purchase a suppressor via our storefront over at silencershop.com. Uh, also on the website, you can sign up for our email newsletter that comes out on Fridays. Or drop us an email to info at capcityoutfitters.com and we will add you to the newsletter list. And then come see us at the store. We're in Hilliard, Ohio, uh, 4465 Cemetery Road. We are directly in front of the Aldi's. Um, we're right next to Lewis Fusion Grill. We're here 10 to 5, um, Tuesday through Friday, and then 10 to 3 on Saturdays through the summer. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Appreciate it.